Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you. Uh, as we begin, I just want to thank our pastor, Pastor Josh, for the opportunity to preach God's Word this morning to you. Uh, I'm especially grateful for Preston Crow. Uh, this morning, Preston Crow is in Kenya with his family on a mission trip. Uh, but last Sunday, Preston kicked off our July focus on healthy relationships. And he did it this way. He brought our attention to part of Jesus's story, really to a section of Jesus's family tree to help us see that our families of origin or our, our backstory, they shape us, but they don't have to define us in healthy or unhealthy ways. And Preston then challenged, he said, hey church, keep Jesus as your model. And he said, also, we left here with three things in mind. He said, hey, spend time uh, seeing how your family of origin shapes you. And then he said, build on those traits that are healthy, that are worth keeping. But then he said, tear down those traits that lead to harm or damage. So how do we begin that? Well, this morning, I would encourage you, it's this way, that we accept an invitation to know and be known. In the first pages of the Bible, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see this invitation just jump off the page. As God, the Creator, invites His prized creation, humanity, to know Him and be known by Him. And it's a similar invitation He offers to Adam and Eve, right? I want, he, God said, I want them, I want you, humanity, to know one another and be known by one another. But Adam and Eve, and like all the rest of us ever since, we chose a different path. And we chose a path that leads to, the result is that we hide from God, we hide from one another, we blame one another, and we stay in shame and in the shadows. This is true for all of us in the room. It's especially true for me. Like left to my own desires, I hide from God, my family, my friends, from you. Here's an example to paint a picture. 25 years ago, uh, my wife Jennifer and I were college students and we were engaged to be married. It was a great season, right? And one night we were sitting uh, for a premarital counseling session with our associate pastor and he gives us each a clipboard with a, a test, a love language test. So the idea behind this is that our answers are supposed to help reveal to one another ways in which we express love, and way in which we want to be most loved. So things like, I don't know, quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation, that kind of thing, right? It was a great idea, but here's what happened in our case. As I closed my eyes and remember my wife doing this, she took that clipboard, had a smile on her face and a twinkle in her eye. Because in her mind, she was thinking, oh, this is gonna lead to intimacy. I'm gonna know him so much better and he's gonna know me so much better. Me, on the other hand, was starting to answer the question and I was panicking because I was realizing my answers to all the questions in my mind were gonna reveal all my weaknesses and there was no way she would ever wanna marry me. So I hid. So here's what I did. I did something that you guys I'm sure would never do because you're probably much more spiritually mature than me. I started kind of aiming my answers to a different area on the test towards the quality of time thing, right? And I thought I got away with it for a few months. I was golden, right? About a year goes by, and one night Jennifer comes to me in tears. She's confused, and she's like, I don't understand. Like, I've been scheduling all these, these, these deep, meaningful conversations, these late, these walks down in our neighborhood in the parks and stuff, and I don't even know you any more than I did the day that we got married. What is wrong? 
I had a lot of work to do. Really, we had a lot of work to do. And now 25 years later, we're still doing that work, rediscovering each other. It hasn't ended. But I bet if I went around the room and asked you, which I'm not going to do, but if I did, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who hides from other people and doesn't want other people to see who we really are, who I really am. I mean, you might be here because of like your position in life, your career. People think really, really highly of you. But when it's quiet and the busyness is gone, you're paralyzed because you're alone and you feel the weight of having to carry on this, uh, this mask of having it all together. Maybe you have friends in your life, like a bunch of friends, but you've never actually shared any single meaningful struggle that you have. And you want to trust people to like link arms and like battle these struggles together, but you have no idea how to begin that, how to trust that. Or maybe you've been a member of this church for decades and you have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to share your story so that other people know they're not alone and that there's someone like them that the same struggles, but you've hidden time and time again. You've sat on your story, never sharing any of it. And you've left these other people to fend for themselves. See, God knows that we struggle with intimacy with him and with one another. And he also knew that we'd be here today to hear and talk about Jesus's intentions, some of his intentions for the church and the necessity of knowing and being known by one another. So if you get nothing else from today's sermon and you're a note taker, write this down. We live out Jesus's mission together by cultivating healthy relationships. I'm going to say it again. We live out Jesus's mission together by cultivating healthy relationships that require us to know and be known. So for the next few moments, I'm going to explain why Jesus's intentions for the church, all those things that lead towards his mission, why it does require us to know and be known. And then I'm going to finish our time sharing three practices that I am learning how to use to cultivate healthier relationships in my own life. But for now, let's go ahead and just let's dive in. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 17, okay? As you're going to Matthew chapter 17, uh, kind of a frame for us, Matthew's gospel, you can imagine everything is kind of leading, talking through Jesus's ministry, his preaching, his teaching, healing of the sick, miracles. But in around chapter 16 and 17, something changed. It's like an abrupt turn, right? Because everything from this point forward, all the attention is going to Jesus, going towards his crucifixion on the cross, towards his glorious resurrection and his launching of the church. And so Matthew sets up this dramatic shift for us on a mountainside, going into chapter 17 with Jesus and three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. Oh, and by the way, two Old Testament heroes, Moses and Elijah, just show up out of nowhere. And if that's not cool enough, there's a moment where Jesus kind of strips himself of his human form and allows him, them to see his transformed supernatural form. Can you imagine that moment? That moment of transparency and revelation from the Son of God. Well, as the story continues, Moses and Elijah vanish, and Jesus, they kind of, he takes them down the mountainside and reminds them, hey, uh, let's keep this a secret just for a little while, right? And, um, and like the rest of chapter 17 is really Jesus setting up some things he's going to talk about with his disciples. He's going to talk about their lack of faith, uh, the necessity of death, the necessity that that brings with humility and victory. And again, he pokes 
his finger on this lead for a humble heart, right? And so chapter 18, as we look at chapter 18, it could be really um, titled, retitled, The Inner Struggle, Learning to Be the Church Together. And as we read the words, we can imagine Jesus reflecting on the events from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and all the things in the Old Testament where time and time again his children fall to the temptation of the enemy. So it makes perfect sense that when Jesus here in chapter 18 begins to unpack his battle strategy for the church, he focuses on, hey, do it together. Be the church together. So with that being said, let's quickly identify five of Jesus's intentions for the church. So here are five one another statements that are going to tell us why we need to know and be known by one another. Verses one through six. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. Let's pause. Imagine being the child in that circle of adults, by the way. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little children who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. In these verses, Jesus instructs his church that we must humble ourselves with one another. Here's how Jesus addresses our need for humility. He uses the image of a little child to describe all of his followers, all of us. They are, and we are, at the basic level, all his little children. None of us have it together. And in the eyes of Jesus, we are all desperately, desperately needy and deeply, deeply loved. So Jesus warns that if any of his children in our brokenness, don't miss this. He warns if anybody in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, if we begin to think that we're more than or better than the other children, we begin to cause one another to sin. And the damage of that and the consequences of that are grave. So we must humble ourselves with one another. Let's look at verse 7 for Jesus' second intention. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So here, Jesus instructs his church that we must protect one another. See, Jesus is holding up a stop sign with an exclamation point for his disciples to understand that they must expect temptation moving forward. Even now, as Jesus' little ones, we face temptation. We should expect that because we face an enemy, because we live in sinful bodies with sinful minds, and because we live in a sinful world. So we must protect ourselves, right? We must, we must build in practices against temptation. Paul described this later in his letter to the Romans, the idea of these practices help us become transformed by the renewing of our minds. And at the end of verse 7, Jesus warns his disciples, his little children, about being the cause of temptations for others. 
He said, not only must we protect ourselves and our holiness, we must protect one another. So Jesus intends for his church to humble ourselves with one another and to protect one another from sin. Let's, let's move to verse 12, though, for Jesus' question to his disciples, okay? Verse 12, so what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Here Jesus is instructing his church that we must pursue one another. Jesus is reminding this first group of soon-to-be shepherds that good shepherds always pursue the sheep that wander away. Jesus' intentions for us in our normal routine, in our daily lives, is that we pursue others who are experiencing loss, temptation, sin. And please hear this. We are to pursue others who we see are wandering away and even those who are intentionally pushing themselves away. As I, I think about this, it, it helps me appreciate um, the role of our pastors and ministers and deacons and life group leaders. Because this is like the organization, the body, the system side of shepherding and care. We are responsible for caring for those who wander, pursuing those. But church members, I have to add your responsibility. You are responsible for being seen and being known by those who have been charged with your care. As I even say that aloud, it, it leads me to think about something I sometimes struggle with. I wonder if those of us who never engage a group, if it's because we want to keep it as easy as possible to slip away or to wander away. But Jesus is instructing his church that we must remain humble, we must protect one another, and we must pursue one another. Let's check out verses 15 through 20, and we're going to read this whole section uh, because it focuses on restoration. It's important for us. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus is instructing his church that we must restore one another. See, what Jesus is doing right here is he's giving his disciples the responsibility, the authority to practice restoration in the here and now in the way that it's done in eternity, in heaven. It's important that we understand this section of Scripture, this passage, because it really is a map for us on how we're supposed to do relationships inside the church as brothers and sisters. So let's consider what Jesus is actually intending right here. What Jesus is doing is he's providing guardrails for us, his little children, on how we need to have difficult conversations about our sin. 
not theoretical, abstract conversations that might never happen. Nope. It's not what he's doing. Jesus is giving guardrails for personal, messy, painful conversations. And because he knows that we are still sinful and broken and struggle with humility, he provides guardrails on how we can pursue and restore one another while protecting one another and protecting his holiness. This is what Jesus intends for restoration. And he's teaching us how to love one another in a way that continues to point towards his holiness and his glory through conversations that are necessary and will lead to intimacy, vulnerability, and being seen rather than shame and hiding and isolation. And here's the deal. When we read this, as Jesus is giving the instructions to his, his church, he expects us this to happen. He expects if we're doing life together, we are going to hurt each other. That's not like that's on the table. That's not off the table. Now, if we never do life together, we come in on Sunday mornings and we never really do life. Yeah, we won't hurt anybody. But if we're doing life together, we're going to hurt each other. And so Jesus says here, you should expect this. And when you do, these are the kind of conversations. Therefore, we should expect these type of one-on-one hard conversations to be more common than more rare in our lives. So Jesus instructs his church to remain humble, to protect, to pursue, and to restore. For the sake of time, let's go ahead and look at verses 21 and 22, which is going to give us our fifth intention that Jesus had for his church. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Here, Jesus is instructing his church that we must forgive one another. Historically, Jewish rabbis taught or led people to forgive each other up to three times. So we got to be thinking that when Peter's saying this, he's feeling pretty generous, pretty gracious. It's a good moment for Peter, right? Until we read Jesus' response of, nope, not seven, 77. And later on in those verses, you see Jesus use this dramatic kind of story, this parable, to make it really, really clear. He's putting his disciples on notice that forgiveness at all costs is what he expects from his little children. Why? Because our forgiveness of each other puts Jesus' forgiveness of us on full display for the rest of the world to see. I wonder what those around you believe about Jesus' forgiveness and his grace based on the way in which you dispense grace to one another. See, Jesus' plan was for us to do life together, messy, but with one another, living out his intentions, practicing right now what we will never get right until eternity, but practicing. And when I read these intentions that Jesus lists here in this passage, I'm overwhelmed because there's no, I have no way to be able to do that, to be those things with you, for you, alongside you in my marriage, unless I know other people and I'm submitting to being known by one another. There's no way. We can't do it at a distance. 
So I'm going to show you one way that I'm practicing knowing and being known by sharing. It's a short video clip of a conversation within my small group. It's not perfect. It's not scripted. Um, but it's just an example of where a few of us are as we're learning how to practice these things. And I need to kind of set it up. The goal of this video and the practice of the three practices I'm going to share afterwards, the goal is not for you to write down and go, oh, that's my list now. That's my, my legalistic, like that's my to-do list. If I do those things, I'm healthy. That's not the goal. The goal is to simply want to give you an example. Then, then you can take and begin to practice if you're not already. Or if you are, maybe sharpen your practice. We asked our media team to fill this part of our small group, and so you get a chance to drop into what's called a check-in, where I'm checking in with two men who are, who are my small group, and you're going to get a chance to hear in my check-in me talk about a fear I have related to my dad's journey with Alzheimer's. So check this out. Tell us um, This is a part we've talked about a lot uh, over the past couple of years, too, but, but talk to us more about the fear side of it with regards to where you are knowing genetically I mean you're a doctor and um, Mm. you know how that all puts genetically you are him and he is you in some way so anyway yeah so um, I was talking to one of his sitters this week uh, just yesterday actually and was talking through family history of his mom my dad's mom having dementia of the Louis body type and then dad having this this brain disease of dementia. And so the next part of the conversation, you can kind of see it in her eyes, she's like, she looks at me, and either I project onto the conversation or, you know, but it is, yeah, those who like living with this, um, this fear. I think the fear of me having something like that genetically, um, it's overwhelming. So what typically happens is for me, it kind of feels like this dark, ominous cloud that sits off on the horizon. That's not yet on me, but it's always, on the horizon, um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely real for me. Um, it, I don't know that it explicitly drives me to do certain things, but it definitely implicit, like it's behind the scene kind of like as a catalyst. Um, when you guys hear me talk about it, what, what do you guys see me do that makes that really obvious or makes you curious about it? I think for me, it's not in that moment. It's more as we've gotten close and knowing how you process things and knowing how deep you think. Um, Knowing that I think most men, the natural inclination would be to not just put it on the horizon, but to put it in that box and just try not to think about it. Where I see you processing it. And so to me, it's courageous. It's probably a little scary too. And I know I wouldn't do it the same way. Uh, So it, it just, um, watching you, listening to you talk, makes it a um, want to ask, uh, want to help, but don't want to bring it up if you don't want to talk about it. So it's just this whole process that we continue to walk through as we get to know each other better. We get to know when it's not just okay, but when it's necessary to push. Um, and I, I think you're probably the hardest one for the three of us because um, we, I think we respect your background more um and so it makes it a matter of time to go because i never feel like you push me i always feel like you just nudge me but i feel like i'm pushing you and so it's just trying to to listen to each other all three of us and 
know when it's the right moment to say, hey, how are you processing that? That's good. That's good. It's really interesting, too, because as I, I listen to that, I think, man, I, I want to push. Yeah. <laughs> Especially <laughs> when you don't get shot. Yeah, like. yeah, that's why this is good. <laughs> Wise and help me along the way, young son. <laughs> help me along the way. Yeah, thank you for letting me share that part of my story. Um, I mentioned three practices that I was going to share. I think I'm going to change that after watching that video again. There's a fourth one. I'm going to give that one to you first. Never, ever, ever wear a tight shirt that's tucked in <laughs> and allow people to film you. Or do it and allow yourself to struggle with being known by your church. <laughs> so I do, I want to close our time by highlighting three practices with you. And again, the reminder, this is not becomes like a to-do list for you. It really is just an example and to encourage you to practice, okay? Um, practicing, even when you leave this room, going to a group and just beginning a conversation with somebody who you trust in your life group or family or friend around lunch today. Practice number one, here we go. Practice number one, practice being present. By being present, I mean learning how to give each other our undivided attention. Now the enemy attempts me most this way when, uh, by doing this, he, he gets me to focus on my, my thoughts and my emotions on either something in the past or worrying or planning something in the future. And when that happens, here's what happens. I become distant, distracted, and all about my to-do list and my agenda. And I'm learning how to do small things as simple as like just turning my phone over, putting my phone away. Um, I'm learning to listen to people and really ask questions that I really want to know the answer to um, rather than preparing my next thoughts. I practice being present with my wife, our adult daughter, um, with my team members at work um, and with the small group that you just saw in there. Um, our small group meets every Friday for an hour and a half. You don't have to meet every Friday for an hour and a half. But the, what I would encourage you is this. Be with some trusted people routinely and often. Okay? So explore in that, those relationships ways to practice being present. Practice number two. Be curious. When I talk about being curious, what I mean is that we approach one another with a posture of, of seeing each other as fellow little children of Jesus that we can learn from, with, and alongside rather than seeing people as obstacles, a means to an end, our enemy. My wife Jennifer and I are learning how to be more curious and our adult daughter Catherine with us too, we're practicing some of that. So, for example, my, my wife and I do a daily check-in. And if I'm being really, really transparent with you, I don't like those. I dread the daily check-in because I'm lazy, because I want to do what's easier, and I want to be comfortable, and I'd rather hide behind a phone, a TV, or just more work. But when we check-in, 
we are experiencing knowing and being known by each other as God intended for us, and it's a beautiful thing. And because she knows, I'm going to answer the question. Um, here's the question. You may ask this of your friends or if you're married. Uh, hey, how was your day? And she knows if she asks that particular question, my answer is going to be what? Fine. That's exactly right. So because she's smarter than me, she's adjusted the questions on me. So now the questions sound more like, hey, what was, the, what was your favorite part of the day? What was the best part? Lunch. <laughs> Lunch. Uh, she'll ask this one. What was your greatest win today? Those are great questions, right? She'll also ask me, what was the hardest part of your day? What's something that was difficult? Hey, what was your worst loss of the day? She's learning to be curious about me. So how do we practice that in a more detailed way? Here's some ways that we do it. We use what's called reflective listening, right? Which is just a way that when we're talking to each other, we repeat back what each other says so that it slows the conversation down and so that we actually know we're listening to each other. We also ask for and receive feedback. And that might be the most important skill that we practice because when we ask for feedback from someone else or how they perceive us, we're communicating you're important and I wanna know what your experience is of me. What it is like when you know me more. I know, I know how I'm wired in my temptations, how the enemy gets me going. So when I ask for temptations, I get a chance to hear from someone else. Do they see me as someone who is caring for them, who's guiding them? Am I encouraging them? Or do they see me as someone who is controlling, micromanaging? I get immediate feedback on that. We also do this when we avoid giving each other advice. Because whenever we switch into advice mode, we stop listening and we start planning. And here's the thing about me, I'm sure you're better off than me, but when I get into advice mode, I become the hero of the story. I become the rescuer. And to be really clear, none of us are heroes in our stories, only Jesus is. So stop giving advice, start being curious. One last one, practice sharing experiences. What I mean by sharing experiences is to be intentional and in doing things together that stretch us and actually reveal things that we think are weaknesses in front of an audience with people that we trust. Whether we're talking about your friends, your family, your coworkers, share, begin to share unplanned little moments that just spontaneously happen, but also big, like calendared, full-on orchestrated. Just share experiences, your tragedies and your victories. Um, this is the hardest one for me. I resist, and I have people who pull me along back into life together, kicking and screaming. Check out this statement, Marie. Paul David Tripp said it this way. As the church family, as the body of Christ, we each need to live in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Read that one more time. It's so good. As a church family, as the body of Christ, we each need to live in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemption community. And all those kind of things, relationships take time. Our small group has met for years. And our shared experiences sometimes happen in groups, around tables, around campfires, driveways. But they're shared moments, shared experiences. Those are three practices. Now, if you're sitting here today and you find yourself like uh, unwilling or resistant to this whole concept, 
Um, the idea that you would need to be to know others more deeply and be known more intimately. I'm going to encourage you just to be curious about that. Consider, what is it about others that make them so unsafe? What is it about you that makes you so unworthy of having that kind of relationship to be truly seen? What is it what is it that you believe about Jesus that makes him so untrustworthy? This is the same God who pursued from the very beginning his creation when we committed treason and rejected him and he pursued in the garden and made a way for us back over and over again. This is that Jesus who left heaven to live with us a perfect life, knowing our experience, life together, dying on a cross, taking our sin and the Father's wrath on him, and then conquering the grave for us so that one day we in eternity can walk in the cool of the day with our Creator. What makes him so untrustworthy? As our worship team prepares to lead us in our closing song, and they join me on stage, and our ministers join me near the stage. Imagine what will happen, church, if... What happens if we ignore Jesus' intentions for the church? What happens if the world around us looks at us as little children and sees that the way we do relationships is no different than the way the world does relationships? I wonder what Broadmoor would look like 10 years from now if our church, the people in this room, choose to limit our relationships to Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and we never actually are present or curious with each other. We never share life in the trenches, struggling with each other, arms linked, and we just do church as we intend, rather than church the way Jesus intended. But I imagine, I wonder what would happen for the glory of God and for the good of our communities. I wonder if just the people in this room alone, we walk out committed, going into our groups to, to live life together as Jesus intended, known, and being known. I wonder what could happen in our friendships, in our family, in our workplaces if we just start practicing. Again, never getting there, but just practicing. I wonder what we would see, how that would amplify the gospel, the good news of Jesus in our community. So as we sing our final song, if you're curious, if you're curious, and you just have some questions, you want to take your first step of knowing and being known today by having a conversation. Um, maybe it's with a minister down front or in our fireside room to my left during the service or after. Maybe you want to talk to someone in your life group or a trusted friend. But today, take your first step of practicing knowing and being known. Let's pray together. Father, you positioned us here intended for us to encourage one another every day so that none of us, that our hearts are hardened, that we don't give in to temptation, that we don't give in to sin. Father, give us this church a desire. We're compelled to share Christ wherever we go. And in that we have confidence, in that we have faith. 
not just in knowing and being known. That's just a means to an end. It's a tool for us in our relationships. The ultimate end is your glory and that people come to know you. Father, as you hear our voice today, Father, let our, let our hearts be resonating with where you are leading us. Father, do not let us harden our hearts in rebellion. In your name we pray, amen.